Hi, everyone. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Sasha Podolsky, the Advocacy Director for AASA, and you are listening to the PEP Talk podcast, a new way for AASA members to stay engaged with our policy and advocacy work. If it's your first time tuning in, thank you for joining us. Here at PEP Talk, we cover all things that could be remotely labeled ed policy. All shows are available for download under the PEP Talk landing page on the AASA website. And looking ahead, if you have a show idea or guest you think we should have on, shoot me a note at spodelsky at aasa.org. Today's episode features Alan Richard, who is an education writer and longtime board member of the Rural School and Community Trust. And if the Rural School and Community Trust sounds familiar to you, it's because uh, AASA has partnered with the Rural School and Community Trust since 2017 because they are the go-to resource on the latest research and trends in education uh, for students in rural districts. Uh, But beyond that, the Rural School and Community Trust is a national nonprofit organization addressing the crucial relationship between good schools and thriving communities. They work in some of the poorest, most challenging places and involve young people in learning linked to their communities, ways to improve the quality of teaching and school leadership, and they advocate in a variety of ways for appropriate state educational policies, including the key issue of equitable and adequate funding for rural schools. I'm thrilled that Alan can join us to share some of the findings from their signature report, Why Rural Matters, which is a 2018-19 version. And this version is actually the ninth in a series of reports the Trust has done analyzing the context and conditions of rural education in each of the 50 states and calling attention to the need for policymakers to address rural education issues in their respective states. While the ninth in the series, this report is not simply an update of data from earlier editions. The Trust has released this report in the midst of the 2020 presidential election, an election cycle in which issues like funding for early childhood education and the education of migrant children continue to be pressing issues and hot-button topics for policymakers, educators, families, and others that care about public education. And within this context, the analysis and data presented in the Why Rural Matters 2018-19 report are intended to help inform policy discussions on these and, of course, many other important issues as they manifest in rural settings. So, Alan, thanks for taking time to talk with me today about this report that is so important to many of AASA's members. And my first question is uh, kind of setting the stage for our discussion here by framing what we talk about when we say rural students in rural schools. So from your report's vantage point, who are we talking about and what do we know about them? Thank you, Sasha. It's great to be with you. And thanks to AASA for this podcast and for all you do to partner with the Rural School and Community Trust. Well, Every few years, every two to three years, we release a report called Why Rural Matters. And this report just came out um, a few weeks ago. And it ranks the states on a variety of measures and and therefore using those measures gets, adds those up and gets an overall ranking in what we call the priority ranking. So if you're number one in this survey, you're not where you need to be when it comes to rural education. Our findings this year are based on federal data, and they're based on the the rural definition that's used by the U.S. Census, um, which is there's three rural classifications under the census. So if you have an entire school district in one of those census tracts, they're considered a rural district. 
And if you have a school in one of those census tracts, even though the entire school district isn't part of that particular rural census tract, then you can have a rural school without being in a rural district. So by that measure, the latest federal data that we analyze show that there are more than 9.3 million students attending a rural school in the U.S. And that's more than one in five U.S. students. And when I was working on the report with our research team a few years ago, I wanted to give some context to what those numbers of rural students really look like. And I wanted to say, hey, you know, there's, there's more rural students in the country than in the New York City school system or some measure like that. But, but when I began to add those numbers up, I realized that the number of students in rural schools are so vast, so vast, that I didn't, I thought it was, I thought we were overblowing it. And uh, I asked our research team and they confirmed that indeed, with more than 9.3 million students attending rural schools, that's more than in the nation's 85 largest school districts combined. So it's pretty remarkable when you think about that, and that's why rural matters so much to our country and to our education system. Wow, that's really that's really great framing for us. Thank you. The next question I have is, what do we know about funding in rural schools? Uh, I know at the federal level we've worked really hard, especially during the ESCA reauthorization, which is now ESSA, to highlight just how there are so many inequities in terms of how federal dollars are distributed to rural school districts around the country. Uh, and I'm curious how your report addressed this issue of funding inequity and what you found specifically about the resources that are going to rural schools or the lack thereof. Absolutely. I mean, the, the resources that go to rural schools vary widely by state and community. Our report looks at, you know, statewide averages, which can really mask the conditions in certain regions of each state. So that's something to keep in mind. Mm -hmm. um, funding is foremost on our minds, and I'll go more in depth about funding in just a second. But I wanted to first sort of give our top 10 uh, highest priority states. Funding is a big part of that, but also to get these rankings, we also look at just how many rural schools there are in each state, what does student achievement look like in the rural schools in those states? What are college readiness indicators like? That sort of thing. And so our 10 highest priority states, in other words, the highest need states in the country in rural education, according to our report, are number one, Mississippi. Number two, a tie between Alabama and North Carolina. Number four is Oklahoma. Five, South Dakota. Six, West Virginia. Seven, Georgia eight, South Carolina, nine, Louisiana, and 10, Florida. Um, so funding is a big part of that. And based on the federal data that we analyzed, uh, an average of about $6,400, $6,400 is spent on instructional costs per rural student in the U.S. But that that's a national average. And so the state averages range from um, about $14,400 in Alaska, but we all know that Alaska is special. There are vast school districts mm -hmm. in that state. Transportation costs are very high. We have to pay educators more in Alaska to, to uh, teach there and that sort of thing. So right. their costs are going to be high in Alaska. But Alaska is the top at 14400 
the, the second highest is in New York. New York spends about $13,200 on average for the instruction of each rural student. Now compare that to the lowest range, Idaho spends about $4,100 per student on its rural instruction. Oklahoma is the second lowest at about $4,700. So you can see the astonishing difference. In, and those funds, by the way, include state, local, and federal funds. So that's kind of really what's spent on the instruction of each student, their teachers, the principals, all those sorts of costs. And it's interesting that 33 states, according to our report, spend less than half the amount that Alaska does wow. on the instruction of each rural student. Wow. And, you know, I was just speaking in North Carolina and uh, a nonprofit there but called the Public School Forum of North Carolina uh, do, does an annual state school funding survey. And they show that when it comes to local funding, the range uh, for school districts across that state is just as astonishing. And actually the lowest uh, funded county by school districts in North Carolina uh, is only able to spend about $900 per student. And it's a rural county, of course, for the instruction of each student. And while that's, you know, then the state adds to that, we would argue that it's not enough. And I'm sure that some of your members in AASA teach and work in schools and, and communities, especially if they're high poverty, high need school systems, they can tell you that while rural communities are wonderful places in lots of ways, the resources that a lot of our states, a lot of our communities are able to provide for our students simply in no way give rural students the same opportunities kids in urban and suburban and even sort of town school districts um, across the country enjoy. And that's right. wrong, and that's why we speak up. Right, absolutely. Absolutely. And I guess getting to that, you know, what in particular did the report find that children in rural schools like these are lacking compared to their peers in suburban and urban and even, you know, town environments? Well, these are just really basic measures of education. And actually, rural students on average do about, or about at the national average overall in student achievement, at least when judged by NAEP, the nation's report card, the National Assessment of Educational Progress. However, those results vary widely among the states and within states. So for example, in high need, uh, high poverty districts in Indian country, the Mississippi Delta, uh, remote communities on the Great Plains, you may find student achievement is extremely low. And of course, you have to look at state test results and things like that and test scores on everything, that's for sure. <laughs> but, right. you know, as a basic barometer, one of the things that's most noticeable, I think, about the opportunities that rural students have is the lack uh, of rigorous and advanced courses that are you know, honestly, standard fare if you're going to go on to college and that sort of thing these days. Uh, uh, fewer than one in ten of the nation's rural students passed an AP exam, advanced placement exam, uh, in the last school years. School year, uh, about twice that many, uh, twice that rate of 
role, uh, twice that rate of all high school juniors and seniors in the U.S. were able to pass those courses, and about one in four suburban students were. Mm. So fewer than one in ten rural, about one in four suburban, and that's just one simple measure of some of the opportunities that are not available. I'm sure that a lot of AASA members would also tell you, especially superintendents, would tell you they struggle to find the school leaders, um, the counselors, the teachers, and other staff that they need in some rural areas of the country and many rural areas of the country. When I was visiting North Carolina a few weeks ago, I had uh, rural principals telling me that they were they're having to bring in teachers from the Philippines to teach elementary school mm. in, in rural eastern North Carolina. Nothing wrong with having teachers from the Philippines if that's what you want. But what about the local talent that's wasted? What about the state and universities and others' roles in, in seeing about this issue so that right. our kids, especially some of the highest-need students in the country who may be behind academically, face family poverty, things like that, they need to be getting the most support, not the least, and they're even providing them the basic, a qualified teacher shouldn't be an afterthought. It should be one of the main priorities. So that's where some of the funding comes in and that sort of thing, and I'm sure that'll ring true with a lot of your AASA members. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And we touched on this a little bit, but uh, I guess in terms of the measures that you have in the report, in what state do you actually think are, are doing okay? I mean, I assume New York is one of them, given the way they're funding rural schools, or at least I would hope it would be. But, um, you know, you mentioned a little about, about the states that are, that are you know, really lacking when it comes to addressing inequities in, in their rural mm-hmm. schools. But on, on, the, on the upside, you know, are there, is there a state or a, a few states that, you know, are really exemplary in terms of how they're trying to address these inequities? Well, there are states that rank among the lowest need on our overall survey, but that also can mask some needs. Uh, Massachusetts is sort of the lowest need state in rural education. Rhode Island, where there are very few rural students. Mm-hmm. Um, Connecticut, where also there are very few rural students. Some states like that, and even states like you know some of the southern states and southwestern states that rank really high, um, do pretty well on some measures. I know that, for example, in uh, Kentucky pays its educators a little better than some states, but they're the 12th overall highest priority state just because there are so many rural students and that sort of thing. So you can find examples of success, and I don't mean to sing the blues. I mean, the purpose of this report is to sound the alarm about the serious challenges out there for too many of our students and our schools. However, the Rural Trust, you know, fights for rural communities. I'm from, I wouldn't give anything for my upbringing in rural South Carolina, for example. But I also know that I didn't have the opportunities that I had in my schools that even kids, other kids in the state or even an hour's drive away had. You know, uh, I became a journalist. I had no journalism classes or anything like that. You know, then I met, got to college and I met kids who had four years of journalism in high school. That's just one simple example. Right. Uh, right. Not to mention advanced courses you know, career tech courses that can lead to good jobs, things like that. Um, so there's lots of examples of there are there's lots of examples of good stuff going on for sure. Um, and you know, I mentioned the sort of the educator shortage in rural areas. One of the things that's happening, our friends at another nonprofit called the Rural Schools Collaborative, 
uh, run by Gary Fonts, who's a former rural trust employee. They're based in Wisconsin, and their main focus is to work with universities on grow your own educator programs around the country. So I believe they work with, um, well, several states. There's an Ozarks teacher corps in Missouri. There's a, uh, there's a program, I believe, at Plymouth State in New Hampshire. And um, I'm actually speaking on a panel tomorrow with the Dean of Education from the University of West Alabama, who has something called the Black Belt Teacher Corps. And between online courses and in-person courses, and they're giving scholarships, leadership development to folks who want to, to kids who want to major in education and become teachers, and also to school administrators and others. Uh, and in fact, I believe they've started in West Alabama. They've started an, uh, an EDD program, a doctoral program in rural education. So that's pretty interesting. So there's some wonderful examples of work going on across the country. But uh, the main purpose of our report is to kind of sound the alarm that that um, we need to do better by our kids out there in rural areas that often get forgotten by policymakers. Right. right. Absolutely. And I guess that, that leads to my last question, which is, you know, is that what is the most important thing you hope that people walk away with after reading this report? Is it what you just said, or is there something else that you think people you want people to, to, to really reflect on? Well, the data tell a, a specific story, but some of the stories that tell the, that rural kids have a lot of potential and, and do well despite the odds. But one thing that maybe is a little behind the data that I know, that many AASA members know, that many educators in rural America and parents and kids know, is that they're not the opportunities are not the same. Uh, I'm tired of going to rural school systems across the country and asking, do they have any advanced placement courses? And being told they've never even been able to think about it because they can't find the advanced teachers they need. And if they get one, they certainly can't keep them because they can't pay what suburban and urban school systems pay or even neighboring larger town districts in some cases. You know, school facilities are, are, are poor. Long-term subs are teaching kids. You know, this is most obvious in some of the highest need areas of the country, like the Mississippi Delta. But um, there are problems like this in every state. And because rural population has dwindled a bit in the last hundred years, you know, some of the political pull of those areas has shifted to urban and suburban areas. And um, what I what I tell policymakers especially in states where they're thinking about changing school funding and things like that. And sometimes the urban and suburban school systems are pitted against rural and small town systems is that we're all smart enough here to figure something out. I don't think you have to merely take resources from some of the wealthier school systems and give it to the rural uh, districts. You know, there may be some tweaks that can be made, and, you know, maybe wealthier taxpayers can pay just a smidge more <laughs> than, than rural taxpayers who already are paying the highest, you know, some of the highest tax rates in the country and that sort of thing. So I really want people to remember, you know, get, sink your teeth into the data. Look at your state's data. In our report, there's a page on every state. There are lots of tables and charts, and you can easily compare your state to your neighboring state. Um, but think about what that data, those data points look like in your own school system 
and and help that and and take those messages to your policymakers, to education advocates in your state, and and to parents and students to speak up for themselves and uh, stand up for rural communities that are such amazing, vibrant, in many cases, beautiful places across the country. But the schools can be better. Money isn't everything, but it sure is something. (laughs) And it can make a difference in our supply and support for educators and in uh, some of the other sectors that we're discussing today. Um, And a little bit might go a long way. Yeah, you're totally right. Absolutely. Money matters for sure. And And I'm preaching to the choir today. No, of course. Of course. I mean, you know, funding is is always something that we talk about every day uh, with policymakers. Because uh, it doesn't matter how good the policy is if there's no money to to implement it. I think this is a, a great read, uh, and I'm so glad that you guys continue to do this report and to share this information um, with with folks at the state level as well as, of course, the federal level, uh, and highlight these inequities. And, and even though it may be repetitive for you to sometimes have to share, you know, the not so great news about uh, the, the, the inequities that rural school districts are facing, you know, I. I I think there's just not enough conversation overall about the needs of rural schools and the needs of rural communities, and that's why it's so important that your organization exists and does this work. So uh, thank you for, for doing it, really. Um, oh, thank you. And I imagine on the AASA website there will be links to the report and that sort of thing. But just so folks know, in case they're listening in their car or something, our website is ruraledu.org. And uh, we're so thankful for our partnership with AASA and you can find the report on our website and lots of other information. And you can follow us on social media, too, if you'd like it, especially on Twitter at Rural Trust. That was perfect. I, I think you, you you ended this just well enough for me. I don't have to say anything else. So <laughs> um, thanks <laughs> to everyone for listening. And thank you so much, Alan, for sharing your time and, and your knowledge and your experiences with us. Thank you so much, Sasha.